what I was kind of the verbal agreement between Jeff and I was that he would pencil me in to run 2021. I did a ride. And so I got back from that race and I was like, all right, I can kind of just coast through the rest of the winter. You know, I'll just help Jeff get ready for that Iditarod. And, and then when he leaves, it's um, fun to work with the puppies and, and uh, explore our little area here in Denali. It was Sunday, March 8th. A seasoned team of sled dogs dance in anticipation. The crisp snow crunching under their paws as they await the signal to begin. It's the 48th annual Iditarod, and they know that just around the corner, an epic journey awaits. Standing on the sled directly behind them is Sean Underwood, a first-time Iditarod musher, as he awaits nervously for the last great race to begin. Just four days ago, this young man from Atlanta, Georgia, learned that he'd be running this pack of dogs over a thousand miles across the frigid Alaskan wilderness. But sometimes, you don't choose your fate. Fate chooses you. From a life of dogs, I'm Jason Ferguson, and this is Short Notice. Support for a life of dogs is brought to you by Royal Canin. Royal Canin offers precise, effective nutrition for dogs based on size, age, breed, and to address specific needs. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. And by Highland Canine Training the industry leader in professional dog training solutions and premier canine education. Highland Canine Training offers turnkey solutions for everyone, from pet owners to law enforcement and military organizations. Learn more at highlandcanine.com. My uncle on my dad's side live uh, up here and have been here for 40 years and most of that time have been commercial fishing up here and you know I, I had that point in my life in 2015 I you know recently graduated college and had some wanderlust and wanted to see some new places and uh, I like seeing places where I might have some kind of connection and they can show me maybe the the more authentic version of the place that they live. And so I thought about Alaska and uh, my aunt and uncle who I was really not close with because you know we were just so far away and such different lifestyles. So I called them up and asked you know, about their life and what they're doing. And, and um, my dad had suggested that they probably, you know, he didn't know much, but he said they might need some help fishing. You know, they're getting up there in age and you know, even though you're not experienced, it would be, might be helpful for you to um, learn something from them this summer. And so I called them and they got me a job and I spent uh, the next two summers up on Kodiak Island, uh, set net fishing for sockeye salmon commercially uh, with my aunt and uncle and cousin. And it was like the most eye-opening experience for me. I mean, it was the most wild adventure. And for them, it was just like a pretty slow summer. But for me, it was like living off the grid, you're drinking water out of a creek, catching your own food, and uh, no cell service, no roads. You know, the only way to get to this cabin was on a float plane, and the closest village was across the bay. And there was one, there was one person in that high school in the village. It was 50 people living there. And it, it just was the craziest uh, 
most amazing summer and it kind of began my love story with Alaska and uh, they happened to know Jeff King who's the guy I've been working for for the last few years um, because their daughters worked here with Jeff's tourism business and the more time I spent up in Alaska the more questions I asked about winter because I knew that summer was it really it was pretty challenging living here in the summer on Kodiak specifically and I wanted I liked the challenge of the winter even though I'd never even experienced more than an inch of snow for you know the six hours that it stays on the ground in Atlanta once every five years so I uh I yeah I um started asking about winter and they brought up their friend Jeff and how he ran the Iditarod and won the Iditarod and uh and they have a couple of his dogs and and so I got in touch with him and and he got you know he hired me to kind of help around the property and I got you know paid minimum wage and then once the the training the dogs started it was kind of downgraded to uh he gave me a place to live and a little bit of cash for groceries and that's kind of the standard for your your barrier to entry into the mushing world is is you just gotta be okay with not really getting much money but they let you in by giving you a place to stay and teaching you the, showing you the ropes and it kind of just snowballed from there just finding yourself at the right place at the right time this is sean underwood one of last year's rookie i did a rod mushers in this episode we will learn about his unique story Unlike many Iditarod mushers, Sean did not spend years preparing to run this race. So when did you start with Jeff? 2016, August. And uh, I ran my first race about six months later. And I, that would be a pretty quick trajectory for most people in the uh, mushing world, especially like some people will just pay big money and run their first race in the same amount of time uh, but I was really just planning on being there to help out you know scooping the dog poop and harnessing the dogs and and taking them on you know the some and some easier runs where there would be as little complications as possible and then I started showing I guess a little bit of competence and uh, the guy uh, me and my coworker were working for Jeff. He tweaked his back. He was going to run a race, but couldn't go. And then I just took his place and I ran a 200 mile sled dog race. And it was, it, it was kind of a similar fashion to how I ran the Iditarod. I found out I was going to run the race like one week before I ran it. And Jeff gave me his best team and just said, don't get caught up in the race. Just pretend like it's a training run. It's, you know what, you know how to run the dogs, you know how to feed the dogs, you know, don't run them too fast and you'll be fine. And that's what we did. And they did awesome. And it was a really hilly race. And, and, uh, and, you know, I got to not get my first Iditarod qualifier. In and I, and once I, I didn't even really think about the Iditarod. I was just thinking, well, this is going to be a cool race. And then I got to the, you know, the races, office and they said hey you know this is an Iditarod qualifier do you want us to like write your name down and and send this information to the Iditarod 
and I was like, I mean, I don't, I don't really think I'm planning on running it. And they were like, well, if there's even like a 0.01% chance that you would think you would run it, you should just do it anyways. And I did. And then ever since then, I kind of had that seed planted in the back of my mind. Like, how can I get to run this, this thousand mile race that I'm probably have no idea what I'll be getting into. The Iditarod isn't an event for the faint of heart. And in order to qualify, it is necessary to demonstrate that a musher and their team has run enough races throughout the year where it will be safe for them to protect. So you, you obviously had to have a few more qualifiers. You got to get what 750 total, I think it is, or, or something like that. And so, so how did you end up with those races and how did they come about? Well, you know, the first winter, I, I, like I said, I got the Testamina 200, which I don't even know if that race is happening anymore. Uh, I got to see the Iditarod start and watch Jeff be that um, big-time celebrity that he is in Anchorage. And then uh, the summertime, we do tourism, tell stories about the winter, show off the puppies. Next winter, I came back, and I, this time, part of the contract for me being around was that he would pay for me to run a race in exchange for me training the dogs and uh i signed up for this time with a little bit more um planning i signed up for the copper basin 300 and it's known as the toughest 300 miles in alaska i really wish i would have read that part of the website and uh it was uh really it's it's started my birthday weekend it's january 14th so it's like three weeks after the winter solstice. It's the dead of winter. It's dark. And this race was kind of similar to the weather of the Iditarod in a lot of ways, that, uh, which kind of helped me um, prepare for it a little bit better. But it was like really warm, 20, 30 degrees most of the race and snowing the whole entire time, all every single yard. And it was just so slow. And it was, it was, it felt eternal it was like the it was just made the 200 mile race look like a little blip and this extra it was it was really challenging terrain super hilly really long long runs uh you know most of them were over 65 miles long usually you are wanting to do somewhere around 50 to 55 and and then take your rest and do it again anyways um Half the teams in the race scratched because of the tough conditions. And we finished um, like 20 something out of 50 teams that started. And it, it was it was just a really fun experience where I really felt like that was the first time I understood how incredibly talented the dogs are. Like when you think that they're probably getting a little bit um, tired, they're, that when I when that thought first gets into my mind, they're not even close to getting tired. They're just getting a little bored, more than anything. And then um, it's your job to, you know, take care of that boredom and take care of them. And and they did an incredible job. And it was young. There were young dogs. They were like all two. And the first time I went, there were all the veterans. So that was another element where it made it a little bit more challenging when you have a bunch of dogs that had never raced before. Anyways, that was my second winter. And then this year was my third winter in Alaska. I took a one year between those two winters 
and I worked with uh, another musher down in Central Oregon who also ran the Iditarod, uh, but it didn't get to race that winter. And I came back here and I got to do my final qualifier in February. And the Copper Basin I knew was a really hard race and I saw, I figured, I, I didn't want to like, there's a, there's a few 300 races around here and I wanted to pick the challenge, the most challenging one, just to be a little bit more prepared for whenever I do get to run the Iditarod. And to me, it was the Quest 300 that always sounded challenging. The Quest 1000 is often referred to as the other thousand mile race. And it's not as popular. It's, it's, it's got um, just half as many mushers in it, but it's, it's a tough race. It's got half as many checkpoints in the same distance. And, uh, you know, it's a month earlier in the winter. So it's probable, probability wise, it's going to be colder and it's definitely going to be darker. And uh, the 300 is just the first 300 miles of the 1000, essentially. So that race happened in February. Uh, uh, there wasn't too many entrants in it. We finished, I think, like seventh or something out of like 20. Uh, and that, that race was, uh, my first experience in a race dealing with the extreme cold. It was, you know, minus 40 at the coldest and, it, um, maybe we'd get up to zero in the heat of the day and everything in between. But, uh, the dogs did so much better with that cold than they did with the 30 degrees in those previous races and their I mean, our speed was the fastest I'd ever traveled with um, that distance and they like just did an awesome job and um, I don't know I just felt like I really at that point walked away from that race feeling like I kind of know what I'm doing when it comes to the 300 mile races I, I don't know how to win them, but I know how to get to the finish line, you know, in a, efficiently. And, uh, and that, that kind of made me feel like, all right, next year I'll get, I'll be ready for the Iditarod. And that was what I was kind of the verbal agreement between Jeff and I was that he would pencil me in to run 2021 Iditarod. Sean had been planning to remain at the kennel while Jeff mushed in the race. A turn of events right before the race, however, rapidly changed everything. He got a, a life-threatening uh, illness and uh, with his intestines, and so he had to go to the hospital, get an emergency surgery. And the, you typically, you're not allowed to let somebody replace you in the Iditarod that with that little notice. But if it's a health scare or an unexpected circumstances, they kind of make a judgment call on it, and he. He, he had a list of two or three people. Uh, I was one of them that he was wanted to take his place. And the reason he picked me is because I've just been working with the dogs for, I knew them all already. And you know, I knew m most of the dogs since they were like, less than a year old. So uh, the other two candidates didn't, but they had ran the Iditarod before. So, you know, it was kind of a, an interesting decision uh and i and I, he was confident he made the right one and i still think he did so does he and uh four days before the race started he called me from the hospital bed and said hey man i, I had a really rough night 
and I'm not going to be able to run the Iditarod anymore, and I want you to take my place. And uh, I was like, you know, just right now, I'm getting the chills thinking about that moment. And uh, I, I was in disbelief. I thought maybe he was, you know, maybe still under the feeling, the, the, the effects of anesthesia, and maybe was, you know, should I really take this with a grain of salt, maybe? And uh, it's, I heard from the race committee that night that it was official. And I spent the whole day kind of questioning it, you know, and then, and then they, I got a call from the, the, the head Iditarod guy and he, he, uh, he confirmed it. So then I started frantically getting all my things together, but it really wasn't, it was just me being a little bit stressed out. It really was as simple as grabbing my parka, my mitts, my boots, and um, I'm pretty much ready to go because Jeff had already packed up all of the gear that's sent out to all the checkpoints. And I didn't have, I mean, I helped him with that, but that job was already done. All we needed was a body on the sled that knew what they were doing. And I just needed to get my human gear that I needed in the sled and ready, which was really only a few hours. And then I got down to Anchorage and now you got microphones in your face and cameras in your face. And it was a little bit new to me, but I've always been kind of a, someone that likes to talk. This has already been a pretty one-way conversation, but um, the race start was incredible, and um, it was a really emotional weekend for me, especially before the, you know they have the two starts, the the ceremonial and the and the official restart as they call it, and uh, the morning of the restart, I was you know we were driving from Anchorage to Willow, and it was just like I was just crying like overwhelmed and um I don't, I don't know I knew I could do it I just was like holy holy crap I'm about to run the idea ride and I, now it gives there's nothing in between there, there, that's it we're doing it in a couple hours and and off we went and once you left that start line it was just the most um relief I could have felt because those four days were just uh really uh overwhelming and then you get out on the trail and it's a calm and a quiet kind of takes over and it's just you and your dog team and things get a little simpler so it seems like you were, you didn't really even have time to sort of process this whole thing until so so when did it really set in i'm running the iditarod it was the morning of the restart. I mean, it set in a little bit like those four days, but it, I just don't think it did a hundred percent set in. I was like, okay, like running the Iditarod and that, you know, I, I said it, the words and I, and I guess I accepted it in a, to a degree, but it was that morning drive I, on Sunday that I was just overwhelmed with emotion and, uh, I couldn't believe it was happening and and I don't know it was it was just it just really hit me hard and uh was ex a very exciting um morning and I got there to the parking lot and the the Iditarod analysts you know kind of like they just like watching a basketball game on ESPN you got you know your journalist and you got your former NBA player telling you 
about what to expect from tonight's basketball game. Well, same thing for the Iditarod. They got um, a couple guys that are kind of talking about what's going on in the race. And, and he came up to me immediately and he had run the race before and, and he saw just like tears rolling down my face. And he was like, this is the part of the Iditarod that no one really knows about because you don't get to see that, see that, you know? And uh, I gathered myself, did a quick interview, and then I started packing and unpacking my sled like five times just to try to figure out what the best way to do it was. You know, Libby Riddles came up to me. She's uh, the first woman to win the Iditarod, and uh, she was there. She saw my sled, and it was just, like, super bulky, and I, like, could barely close the zippers. She was like, wow, you're, uh, you're back in the kitchen sink there with you know and and i was like i don't know i just figured i'd bring more and and if i don't need it i can always just send it home but yeah it was a crazy morning and it was dumping i mean it was just huge snowflakes and it's no several inches that morning uh so yeah it was it was very exciting after the ceremonies are over and the excitement of starting wears off it's just a musher and their dog team Along with their thoughts, their next job is to run through the Alaskan Arctic, more than a thousand miles to the finish line. Although weather during the Iditarod has been milder in recent years, the conditions of the 2020 race proved to be as wild as the events that followed. Stay with us as we continue to tell Sean's story. Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. The individual health of every dog is as unique as they are. However, these health needs are often characteristic of their size, breed, or lifestyle. Each individual recipe is formulated to deliver the exact level of natural antioxidants, vitamins, fiber, prebiotics, and minerals that are essential to your pet's unique health needs. Discover how Royal Canin products can help every pet enjoy its best health possible. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research and development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. Highland Canine Training offers affordable and proven dog training solutions to resolve even the most difficult of dog problems. Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training also offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. In addition, they offer first-class canine education programs at their School for Dog Trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The School for Dog Trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The Service Dog Training Division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandCanine.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference. Yeah, it was the best winter 
that race has had in a while, to my understanding, um, you know, there was a lot of concern among the mushers that the week of that and the race committee. I mean, the, the pe there's people out there snowmobiling down the trail, making sure it's safe and also at the same time packing down the snow to make the trail just that much better and quicker. And they said that, you know, it's as wide as as the snowmobile. There's no room on either side and there's just four foot plus walls of snow on either side of the trail and that there wouldn't be any places to pull over and park your team if you're planning on camping out because you can camp out anywhere you want whether it's on at the checkpoint or not and uh, so people were going to start using their snowshoes to pack down the snow and you know that used to be kind of a a regular thing you did in the early I did around days, but nowadays no one uses their snowshoes really at all. It's almost completely unheard of. And it kind of, you know, that was part of the panic attack was that I was having was like, uh, what am I going to do to park my team? You know, there's going to be nowhere to pull over. And what is everybody else doing? And, and uh, I was uh, kind of asking around and it was all, it was all just, uh, another reason to get worked up you get out there and the trail was like in the first 40 miles were pretty soft and bumpy and a lot of snow and you know it was almost kind of I, I thought it was perfect timing like if you're going to give me a snowstorm make it be on day one because the dogs are have rested for three or four or five days with very little exercise and they're just screaming to go and you're you're, it's too much power. It's just, but the reason that you have that many dogs is because you, you got to plan, you're going to plan on sending some home. So you have to kind of bring the bench with you, which means early on when those dogs are pumped up, man, you're standing on the brake because it's just not in their best interest to be going 15 miles an hour down the first hundred miles. You're going to just blow them up and they're going to go home before you get halfway through the race. So the snow kind of slowed the team down It slowed the trail down and I didn't have to stand on the brake as hard at least. And by the time we get to mile 50, the trail was pretty hard packed. And there's, I was in the middle of the pack. There's a bunch of mushers in front of me. They packed down the trail. There's snow machiners out there. It's a big party. The Iditarod start and people travel down the trail and set up tailgates or trail gates and, and you passing your hamburgers and, beers or sodas or whatever and um it was you know there's a lot of traffic and by the time we got to these sections of trail that we were concerned about they were as good of a trail as you could possibly ask for it's a ton of snow to set your hook in uh and a plenty of you know there was places you definitely could not park your team for sure but there was as m many places where you could and it was I mean, it, I think we got, I, I got lucky. Like I, I'm, I'm thinking next time I run this thing, uh, the trail is no way going to be as good as it was because we were going through these sections of trail that are, you know, the notorious Balzell Gorge and the, the Happy River Steps that you hear so many crazy stories about people having gnarly crashes. And it was like, it was just fun mushing. There was no real danger that I've ever, I ever felt in there. I mean, I, 
I was like alert level 100, you know, knowing that this is the section, this is where you really got to pay attention. And, but you know, it ended up being just a really, really fun 20 miles, but it wasn't like I was, you know, came out of it bruised and battered. And that was because there was a bunch of snow. So yeah, it was, ended up being a really good conditions. Those first like 400 miles. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, so those first 400 were fantastic and this trail was fast. So in that early part, you end up having to go through the race, you go over two different mountain ranges, early part, you got to go over the first one. Um, what's that like for you? What's that like for the team having to climb up and down two mountain ranges to get, get the gnome? Um, mountain ranges, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, biggest, I'm thinking Alaska range is the mountain range. You know, that is the one that we live in here in Denali. And it's, it's got some gnarly mountains. You're thinking, oh man, this is going to be inc insane. And then it ended up being maybe not as challenging as the rest of the hills that the race brought you. But uh, it's early on. And I think that the change in terrain, to me, the dogs, in my for me, my team, they just never got tired. They were like, I was running a very conservative schedule being a rookie even though I had a team that can is capable of winning I didn't feel comfortable running that kind of schedule so they were like never I mean I remember getting to checkpoints and there'd be a couple of dogs on my team you know if, if you're running the race competitively they get to the checkpoint and they go to sleep like instantly because they're ready to take a nap and these, I get dogs that come to the checkpoint and they're playing with each other and, and, you know, wrestling. And I'm like, dude, well, you know what? You should be conserving your energy for something besides wrestling and, uh, with one another. And, and our, and one of the competitors looked over at my dog team while they were resting and, uh, was like, dude, what are you even doing here? You should be going to the next checkpoint. That team is not tired. And anyways, the point is, what I end up fighting more than the tiredness of the dogs, that's not really happening at all. What's happening is when you run on a river for 50 miles and there's nothing like besides just a river that is pretty much stays the same. They get, they're like just moving and they like kind of zone out and they get a little bored and maybe a little lethargic. But when you're going through the Alaska range, they are not lethargic. They, that's part of the danger of it is they get so excited they go going through the mountains and up and down the hills that they the more um technical the trail gets it seems the harder they pull because they're excited to go around a turn i mean you'll see their ears perk up whenever they see a bunch of markers that signal that there's a turn they're like oh a turn oh we're gonna maybe we can knock coach off the sled and uh you know the, the, the Alaska range was just such a blast. It was, it was like that moment in the race where I felt like I was actually like an athlete, you know, cause you really had to steer the sled around. Um, and then you get out of the range and you got a bunch of river miles ahead of you and, and you kind of get a break from that technical riding and, and it, then it's a completely different challenge, which is just totally mental for you and for the dogs. And, uh, we, we, 
got onto the Yukon River and it was just like there's the snowstorm that that really um slowed down i mean it was basically the storm that 20 for 20 plus teams dropped out of the race because the storm just made the conditions really really slow and uh people were going like five miles an hour because there's just a bunch of wet heavy snow and you're going on the yukon river man that thing is i swear i know it's a river but sometimes it felt like it was uphill and you you know it was just you it it it's just a mental like it's a dark place <laughs> for some reason i don't know it's it's a um that's that that's when that's why we train the way that we train with our dogs is we take them out on to the frozen rivers around here or to the denali highway and the, the trail is really not that exciting so the dogs have practiced the monotonous trail and they know to be ready for it so they did great but uh yeah you know the hills to me were the when the dogs performed the best because they get excited it's almost like they're saying finally a challenge you know and then they really really excel and perform for that challenge and then when we go on the boring parts of trail that's when they kind of take a break mentally or maybe even a little bit physically and they're just kind of like running and you can just tell they're like checked out and that's almost kind of something that you want them to do because they're getting a little bit of rest while still moving so they just mentally they don't really need to like be on high alert you know they say that a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Well, what is traveling this distance actually like when you have no human company or entertainment? Um, you know, you get to a point where you're so tired that you, you know, I actually like went for a hike last night or two nights ago and I, it was like, we went on a midnight hike and you know, it, it, we got back at 3 a.m. and I was just like kind of a shell of myself for the rest of the day, even though I didn't really wasn't that crazy of sleep deprivation, but I just am not as good of a conversationalist because I just like my brain's just got this little square to operate in when I don't get uh, my six plus hours. And when you're out there, you're getting, you know, may, maybe three hours a day, sometimes more, sometimes less. And your brain just doesn't have the energy to like be doing anything more than concentrating on the trail and on the dogs and, and everything else is just off and it's turned off. And, uh, you know, the, the only time I'd be in my head is when I'd look at a dog and see some minor marginal change in their either their body language or the way that they're running and uh be thinking okay what's going on with that dog let's look at the stare at this dog for the next hour or 30 minutes or whatever and decide should i put this give this dog a break and and ride with me in the sled or just looks fine he's just kind of a little bored or uh and needs to get to the next checkpoint and uh and those were the kinds of things where I play head games. Cause you know, I had one instance where I, a lot, you know, I got, to, I was at a checkpoint and one of my dogs didn't eat, which isn't terribly uncommon. Uh, and usually 
95% of the time, I just bring the food with me. Well, 100% of the time, I bring the food with me, and 95% of the time, they just eat the food an hour later, and they just needed to get up and move around. It's kind of like when you wake up from uh, a night of sleep, you don't really want to stuff your face full of food five minutes after you woke up. You want to get a cup of coffee in and, um, you know, read the paper and then maybe uh, get some some food in you. But this dog, uh, I didn't eat and then I started moving and he wasn't pulling and he's, to me, he's the best dog on my team. And uh, he's not a good lead dog, but doesn't mean he's, to me, the, the energy that he brings is better than being a lead dog. And he wasn't pulling. And I've never, ever, ne ever seen him not pull. And I'm sitting there. That's when you get in your head. You're wondering, all right, what's going on here? This, is this just me, like, getting a little bit too neurotic about the dog? Or is this actually, like, warranted that I am worried about this dog? And I just went ahead and turned around and sent the dog home. And, you know, a lot of times you think you see something and you don't. And other times you you were like, I don't think I see anything. And there was something. And those are the kinds of things that you're getting in your head is those, because it, it's not obvious. And that's why it's so important to have somebody that's really experienced on the sled or somebody that's really experienced with those dogs in front of the sled. And uh, those, that's the head games for me is, is, is figuring out what the dogs need and and you know even just like the timing of feeding and feeding them and then what you're feeding them and how you're feeding it to them those little things can make or break the next 100 miles is or 50 miles or whatever you know you gotta if i don't feed them in this 15 minute window then they're not going to eat for the next three hours but if i you know those, those, and and how are you going to prep the food in only 15 minutes maybe I should just give them a snack and, and feed them later. You know, so those are the things that get in my head is how can I best care for these dogs and uh, everything else you don't have energy to be thinking about, you know, anything else, but you and your team. You talk about the, the planning and I know you said the drop bags had already been sent out and you'd helped with that part of the process. But uh, it seems like a lot of the mushers, to some degree, uh, send certain things to certain checkpoints because they, to some degree, have a little bit of a plan in their head of, you know, I'm probably going to take my 24 here. I'm probably going to take my eight there. I'm probably going to do this. I'm, I'm thinking we'll be expecting this here. So I'm going to pack this way and drop this at, you know, uh, Koyak. I'm going to put this at the cotton. I'm going to put this here. I'm going to put this there. Um, you, you didn't really have as much control over that because basically you were prepping for Jeff to run the race. So how much of an impact did that have on you? You know, the good thing is, is that Jeff had, a, I think he has a, maybe a little bit more, I mean, he's always been an individual thinker and that's why he's won this race is because he doesn't, uh, he likes to think outside the box. And um, I think one of the things that, I'm not really sure what every other musher's doing, but he told me that he sent the exact same thing uh, for as far as dog food goes to every single checkpoint except for two. Uh, and those two checkpoints were uh, the, 
the two places that he was considering taking his 24 at. So as far as the dog food went, it was pretty much, uh, I knew what I was getting and um, wasn't huge. And then, uh, you know, the, I think he, some of the, some of the like human food was like, it was, that was always a surprise, you know, cause he ended up getting, uh, a, one of some of the local restaurants to make some to go meals. And then he, uh, we, we, um, whatchamacallit, uh, what are those things? The, the, when you put them in the plastic and you suck the oxygen out, what am I thinking of? Oh, like vacuum sealed. So oh, there we go. Uh, yeah. So he had all those vacuum sealed meals and they were like, Oh, they were so good. There was like enchiladas that were just like the size of my head. Uh, then a you know big thing of chili, and uh, he had another. He had Rubens set out and and um, vacuum sealed, and I was eating like royalty out there. And and then he had a bunch of snacks. You know, I, I most I, what I found awesome was the like sleeves of Kit Kats that were you know eight two eight little two um two fingered kit kats and at one point i had like like four sleeves of kit kats in my sled and i was like what am i gonna do with all these kit kats i can't like i gotta give them to someone so i was just like handing out kit kats to mushrooms like you guys want some kit kats and they're like oh i love kit kats so uh you know that it was it was it really wasn't problematic but uh you know it, it was there was like certain things little tiny the comfort things that were put in there that are not essential that were huge um like he put a hand towel in a lot of the checkpoints so that when i was messing with all that raw dog food i could just kind of wipe my hands off he had plastic gloves also for um playing with the the fat you know that you're putting in these meals gets stuck everywhere you can't wipe that off very easily and um, you know, my buddy sent me, uh, he, he gave me a pair of insulated slippers and I was like, dude, insulated slippers. I, what, what kind of, what are you kidding me? And well, he's like, dude, you just put your boots in front of the fire, let them dry out and you can wear the slippers out. If you need to go check on the dog team, you know, in between your nap time or your time you're feeding yourself. That was like one of the most amazing things is being able to take your boots off for like six hours and then walking around in these slippers i was like everybody else is walking around in their boots and i was just like man if they only knew how comfortable my feet are right now you know so, so some of those little things that you don't really need but they help you kind of just enjoy a little um extra comfort out there but yeah it ended up being not a huge a huge deal um but you know it it was definitely a little bit of surprise and kind of like opening up a Christmas present on at each checkpoint, you know, and wondering what's going to be in there. But it was pretty consistent. 58 teams ran in the 2020 Iditarod. With so many contestants following the same trail, it is difficult to imagine that a musher could find themselves completely alone for hours at a time. But how often do they really find themselves running alongside other teams? We were, I was talking about this with my brother the other day. He was like, dude, when I was following your tracker, it looked like you were just like buddies, buddy, 
buddy buddy with um you know musher a and musher b that you guys are always just this close to each other like do you guys, are you guys like traveling together like you see each other and he asked me and I, and 92 percent of the time i did not see anybody but there was occasional times where i remember um from like on the way to old woman's cabin and you know cleat me and riley were with inside of each other for a while uh and then at night you know you can if, especially on the yukon river where you can see for like 15 miles ahead and behind you you can see those headlamps but they're just like these distant distant lights and some people don't even travel with headlamps especially if it's a full moon um you can really see pretty well with all the white you know white snow everywhere and and I remember Martin Boozer passed me early in the race. Like I, I was like drifting off to sleep. Like the first two nights are like the worst nights for sleep deprivation. Cause you're like just kind of getting into this weird rhythm. At least I was. Some mushers just live that schedule, you know. That's it's pretty extreme, but some mushers just live the mushing schedule, you know, so they're used to it by the time the race starts. But I, I wasn't doing that. And so those, I was drifting off to sleep and then next, I like wake up because my dog team was like about to pull the sled from underneath me because the dog team was right by, next to them and Boozer just passed me without a headlamp in the dead of night. And I was like, huh, pretty cool. And uh, <clears throat> anyways, the, what was the question? <laughs> kind of got sidetracked. Yeah, just talking about how often you saw other mushers, how, how often you were yeah, yeah, yeah. on so, your own. Generally, not in, they weren't within sight, but at night you'd see the headlamps. And every now and again, I was kind of close with a musher. And I'm, Riley and I were, I, that's to me the one moment I remember where we were going through this section of trail that was so frustrating. It was, the dogs were ready to run fast, but the trail was like really mogul So like, you couldn't really get that momentum going because it, it's one of those things like you get the, you, you can get up to nine miles an hour then once it's up there, the dogs just kind of got to run in front of the sled to keep it going. But when you're going up like this, and it's, and it's it's flat, but it's just like the way that the snow machines like pack it down and drive on the trail, it just creates this like undulating like Loch Ness monster humps on the trail or whatever. And it just was like we were so stoked leaving that checkpoint because our teams were finally fast after that snowstorm and then we get to this section of trail and so riley's right behind me and he's like dude i don't think i'm gonna pass you uh and i'm like you sure you don't want to pass me you're kind of on my on my ass here and he's like no i think i'm gonna it's not a good idea and so we travel for an hour and he's still on my butt he's like you know what man i think i'm gonna pass you and so you're like it's a really it was a really narrow trail he passes me it's kind of a little bit of a kerfuffle and and off he goes like 20 minutes later he turns around and he's like dude shouldn't have passed you <laughs> and uh i'm on his butt now and he's like so i'm now i'm behind him and i'm on my break so basically it's like always the team that's behind the other team you know, is the one that's going faster and then you get out in front of the team and now they don't have anything to chase and the team behind you is now faster than the team that's so kind of we were switching back and forth all the time and there was no right answer to it you know but yeah you see them out there for sure how much how much nighttime traveling did you do what's that like i mean 
50-50 nighttime and daytime. I mean, I, I was aiming to travel at night more than during the day because of how warm it was. The, the daytime, the sun is devastating to the trail, to the dog, the, not to the dogs, but it's just, they, it's like us going, you going for a run in North Carolina at 4 p.m. on a, in July. You know, it's just not the best idea. Uh, you can do it, but your run time's not going to be as fast, and you're going to be a lot more tired running two miles at four than you would at 8 a.m. And same with the dogs. You know, they, if, if, you, if, you, if you leave a checkpoint at 11 and you run until 6 p.m., that is just not the best case scenario. You can do it, but if you can avoid it, beat, your team's better off. Uh, so I spent a lot of time running at night and yeah, it's, it's not, I honestly kind of like it. It's, I don't know. There's just, uh, especially when the moon was out, man, when we went through the Alaska range, the moon was like full moon. I did not need a headlamp. It was blowing hard, but it was clear. And it was like, it was just, you can't even, I tried to take a picture of it. Like you, the, the phone doesn't, my crappy phone didn't pick up the, the uh, little light that there was, but man, it was just like, you could see all the details of the mountains and, and it was, it was gorgeous. And uh, yeah, you know, I like, I like traveling at night and then you get to the checkpoint and the sun's rising and you feed the dogs and now the sun's up and you are now the dogs are out there taking a nap in the heat of the day sunbathing and they you can just see it they just look like ah oh, this is like the most like deep deep sleep that they're in and and i too you know am ready to take a long nap as well but yeah it's not that bad you know you, you have your headlamp on and you can you keep it on low and if you see something off in the distance that looks like it could be a moose you on high and ends up being just a bush but yeah it, the, the Yukon River definitely was pretty rough like monotony wise and again you ask any musher if monotony is your biggest problem you're doing great but it was uh it was just like impossible to stay awake I just I'm, I'm there was some sections of trail where I just sat down and I buckled myself in and was like I'm just gonna go to sleep and uh the dogs dogs that know what they're doing there's no it's not like there's like a spaghetti junction of trails out there I mean it's just the one trail for the most part so that's what we did and it wasn't I liked it at night Alaska is the largest state in the U.S. covering a landmass of approximately 663,300 square miles Alaska's size, combined with its low population, means that much of its natural land remains untouched. The Iditarod Trail cuts straight through the center of it, and this 1,000-mile trail enables mushers to see a significant amount of Alaska's incredible natural beauty. So what is the scenery actually like? So you, you sort of mentioned the uh, scenery a bit going through the Alaskan range. I think the trail's... Uh, portion of Alaska that not a lot of people have seen nor ever will see 
Um, what's it like taking in the scenery from the beginning to end there? So, it's day and night. Yeah, it's awesome, man. I mean, because you're, it, it just changes so much. You're, and I love that you're, a lot of the races are like out and back. So you're kind of doing the same thing twice. This one's just A to B. And so you're always seeing something new. And, you know, what, the going through that Dalzell Gorge, I remember like getting, getting, you get in, like you're really in the mountains, but you're like in the valleys. And you like turn a corner around a mountain and you're looking at ahead and there's just this massive mount, wall of mountain in front of you and massive walls on either side. And I'm looking like, where the hell is this trail going to take us? There's no, there's nowhere to go. And you just keep going and going. And then there's just this little valley that's like, you know, 10 feet wide and the trails in the middle of it, or you're side hilling on the side of a mountain. And you're just like, who is the guy that was thinking this is probably the best, the path of least resistance to be, or I mean, how do they even have the 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 guts to attempt to make it through this this section? And uh, and then you know, I I think I was, I mean, I went into this race and I didn't even really know the order of the checkpoints. I'd get to one checkpoint and I'd be like, what's the next one again? And then you get to the next checkpoint and you're like, okay, so the next two are the cripple and, and, and Ruby. Okay, cool. And so I was like learning the trail, even the names of it, you know, the, and, and the distances. I didn't, I didn't know. I was like, I, I remember going in the race. I was like, Jeff, dude, what, like, what's the move here? I mean, what should I do between Cripple and Ruby when it's 75 miles? Should I just push through or split it into two runs and camp in the middle? And he was like, dude, by the time you get to mile 500, you're going to be an expert. Okay. So don't worry about that. Just, just get through that first few days. And, and it was true. It's just like, you just get so in tune with everything. But um, yeah, it was just, gorgeous and it's crazy to think that there's these people living in these villages that are just insanely remote and the lifestyle is just totally unique to anything uh, I could ever dream of and uh, and then you know it's I'm, I think one of the most beautiful sceneries I saw was leaving and entering into New Lotto and you're just like on I don't, I'm not sure which river but the river was poorly covered in snow so you're just like on ice on top of a river sliding around and a little bit out of control but somewhat in control and there's just like the mount the sunlight was out and it was hitting the mountains like early in the morning and it was just the last run before you leave the Alaska range and it's just this big moment kind of where you've conquered that this this incredible um rugged terrain and uh it was just a you know it was it was it's something that i i don't even have any like proof that i did i just didn't bother taking out my camera because i it, you, know, you can barely keep it charged and then it gets cold and i have a crappy little droid and it's just so i just sucked soaked it all in and and um it was you know it was just such a beautiful place and uh at night, you can't exactly see everything, but you know, the stars are out, it's pretty spectacular. And 
and again moon the, the those full moon nights those first like four nights of the race uh the ones that were clear it was just it was um awesome i didn't i i would go hours without putting my headlamp on during those nights uh it was it was pretty special yeah i've been to alaska a few times and it, it i find it difficult to articulate it's pretty hard yeah. to just pretty hard to describe it's the scale man it's like so massive and so vast and such an abyss of, of land Even people who have visited Alaska multiple times continue to be astounded by its beauty. Names such as North to the Future, Land of the Midnight Sun, and America's Last Frontier have been part of Alaska's identity for years, lending to its reputation as being something wholly unique. This lush Arctic paradise of indescribable splendor is home to one of the greatest sled dog races that the world has ever known. It was the final section of the race, and they were closing in on the finish line. But something changed as Sean and his dog team reached the coast. In a wilderness as wild and unexpected as Alaska's, it can be easier to get into trouble than out of it. I mean, the coast alone, you know, that right there, I feel you could write a book about it. It was so, uh, you think the coast, you think flat, windy, and it's one of those is right. It's windy, but it certainly is not flat. And there's, there's, I don't know what you were referring to as like the second mountain range, but there's just like several mountains throughout the coast. And it was, I didn't really get the memo on that. So I was, uh, very surprised at the challenges that the coast brought were different than I expected. Uh, the wind was um, relentless and it was fortunately it was warm. So it wasn't like I was cold necessarily, but you know, this, the sled's getting blown off the trail and the dogs are pulling it back on the trail. And then you got, it's like, it's just a little bit more physical for the musher and the dogs. Sometimes, you just end up in the right place at the wrong time. As one group of 2020 Iditarod mushers learned the hard way, Sean, unfortunately, was one of those mushers. Stay tuned to learn what happened by the coast in one of our upcoming episodes. I want to thank you for joining us today in hearing rookie Iditarod musher Sean Underwood's unique story. Although Sean's unexpected entrance into the Iditarod world may have transpired on short notice. His mushing legacy still has a long way to go. Be sure to stay tuned to our next episode for another amazing story of adversity from veteran musher Matthew Failer. Um, but his uh, tightness in his muscle wasn't going to heal in that short time frame, so I sent him home in the third checkpoint. So quickly down on dogs within the first day and a half from 14 to 12. Um, and that was the writing on the wall, just, just small little nicks and dings and 
Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. And be sure to check out our great stories from Season 1. For even more content, visit our website at alifeofdogs.com. If you enjoy our stories, be sure to give us a five-star rating and share our podcast with your friends. This episode produced by Jason Ferguson. Story, Stasha Dempster. We leave you with this episode with a bit of sad news. Earlier this month, Alaskan legend and music icon Hobo Jim Varsos passed away after a battle with cancer. As a tribute, we leave you with his song, Where Legends Are Born. In the caribou tundra, in the wild barren land On the fierce arctic ice where the polar bears stand Where the trail of the Eskimo hunter is worn This is the country where legends are born Where the northern lights blaze above a cold arctic haze And caribou come to an old shaman's drum In saloons and in dance halls they talked of the gold There were stories of fortune, stories of coal The trail of the weary gold miner is worn This is the country where legends are born Where they measured a man by the gold in his hand The speed of his gun or the dogs he would run He came here to settle, to build a new land In her mountains and valleys, in their cabins they stand The trail of the hardy homesteader is worn This is the country where legends are born These fields you see now were broke by their plow And their children have grown to build homes of their own And in the caribou tundra, in the wild barren land On the fierce arctic ice where the polar bear stands where the trail of the Eskimo hunter is worn Ah, oh, this is the country where legends are born